We're talking about real issues, man. Real issues that will end your business in five minutes by someone clicking on the wrong thing. Do people get it now? Just imagine you blocked everything by default. This ransomware wouldn't be able to run. The funny thing is that I didn't realize how hard it was to make endpoint security because I never would have started if I'd known how hard it was. <laughs> they went from every week another incident of a bot sending out emails to pop-ups on the machine to zero, nothing. Who says tech can't be human? What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to the show. I am joined today by a great guest, a guest that I've been excited to have on the podcast for at least two months now. This has been two months in the making. This guest is a co-founder and CEO of a company that I think is doing something really different, and that's Zero Trust for Endpoint Protection. My special guest this episode is Danny Jenkins. Danny Jenkins is the CEO and co-founder of ThreatLocker. Danny, welcome to the podcast. Ron, thank you for inviting me today. Yes, I am so excited for this episode, and I'm excited because you had a really awesome hero's journey. A lot of people will say a founder's journey, but I look at your journey as a hero's journey because we spoke about kind of your introduction into starting ThreatLocker. It came from an existing problem that you had that started many years ago, and it was around email security and phishing. So take us down a walk down memory lane. What was you know your origin into cybersecurity and email security, and how did that start to evolve and change the way that you thought about things? So I, I left school really young, 15 years old, and I didn't graduate, and I didn't go to college, and I, I wanted to work in IT. And I, I knew a little bit about computers. I'd write batch files in Windows 3.1, and I got a job in a local IT company. It was actually an MSP. They didn't call them MSPs back then, but it was essentially an MSP. This was in the 90s. Mm. And I, I very, very quickly progressed and learned in IT very fast. I changed jobs a few times, and I ended up working in corporate IT for a multinational company in Ireland. Suddenly, the company started getting malware, and the I love you virus, and then the blaster uh, virus, yep. and things like this. And... At this point, the company was getting these infections worldwide. So they had 146 different sites. They were all autonomous IT departments or that had different divisions with different IT departments. And the head office was just one of them. But they were all joined together on the same network. And they all had, you know, the same, they were in the same directory on email. They all had their own exchange servers. And so when something happened, it affected the entire business. So the group started looking at, well, we need to secure things. And I ended up taking the lead of that. And I was very, very young at the time, but I was taking the lead. Uh, and I ended up learning really, really fast about global network security, exchange, um, patching, uh, and you know, at spam. Because what happened, these all became group initiatives because they weren't an individual division. It was a whole company problem. And that gave me a really great start into cybersecurity. And uh, one of the problems we had at the company was email security. We kept hitting these vendors and then they're breaking and not get good. And there wasn't really cloud email security. There was a little bit, but not much. I think it was Postini and message jobs that come in the market weren't very good. So we went off and I said, oh, we're going to create an email security company. And I, I, I resigned my position and I created that company. And we, I actually ran two email security companies. I did oh, the email man. security. I sold the first one out to the investors. Um, and then the second one, I actually sold out to one of our customers. Hey, we're looking at building our own solution. I said, you know, you can just buy mine. 
and I sold it to them. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, well, what am I going to do now? Now, I've always been very technical hands-on when I worked in corporate security. Um, I was doing a lot of scripting, a lot of vulnerability testing. So I started doing ethical hacking. And it was interesting because I, I wanted to just, it was fun. When I say it was fun, it, it, the idea was fun. It's actually boring mostly, but it, I could go in, I could say, hey, I want to show you how people can get in your system. I'd write custom malware. I'd get in their machines and then I'd get paid on the back end of that, like right. with their permission, right. of course. And what it turned into was more and more people knowing me and then more and more people just calling me saying, hey, we need your help. We've been hacked. And they go, what do you mean you've been hacked? They go, I've got this ransomware and all my files are gone. And uh, and I ended up doing more recoveries of ransomware than I was actually ethical hacking. And I kept saying to people, hey, you've got to, and it wasn't called zero trust then, you've got to use things like whitelisting. You've got to deny everything, only allow what you need. You've got to lock down all the reports on the firewall and you've got to stop outbound network traffic. And everyone's like, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And I went out looking for products that did things and there was very little out there. And I think this is where it changed. There was one ransomware case in Australia and it was a small insurance company and maybe a bit of broker or a secondary insurer or something like that. And they had 50 employees or something, so not massive. And they got hit by ransomware. Everything, their, their claims database, their email, everything was gone. And they paid $22,000 to get the data back. This is 2014. Right. 2015, maybe. Um, Early days of ransomware. Early days. So 22000 was pretty big back then. So they paid all this money to get the data back and it didn't work. And so they called me in, this MSP called me up and said, can you help with the recovery? And I said, well, I can try. So I got on, we started looking at backups. They were gone, the exchange server gone, mm. database is gone. So we, we start getting into low level disk recovery, rebuilding email from OSTs, everything you can possibly imagine to get this company back up and running. And about a week into the recovery, the CEO called me and he was like, what's happening? Are we going to get this up? And he, he started crying on the phone to me. No, I'm British. British people don't cry. So I have no idea what to do here. Like <laughs> <laughs> if you cry in Britain, you got to leave. Right. So especially if you're like, so, uh, so I'm like, okay. Uh, but it, it really kind of struck a nerve. It's like, how did this 60 year old man get bored to tears because someone decided to download a free piece of software? Mm. And it was so stupid, the, the action from the user and the reaction and the damage it caused to the business. And I was like, we got to create a product to solve this. And that's, that's where the idea of ThreatLocker came from. It's like, we've got to make this product happen. I love that story. And it really describes the pain that someone could have. Like, I know that if I was the CEO, let alone the CISO of an organization, and we got hit with ransomware, I'm going to have anxiety. I'm going to be up all night. I'm going to be worried about my team. And like, can they solve this problem? But also worried about my job and my, you know, the livelihood for my family. But they didn't, they didn't go out of business. But as far as he was concerned, his entire life's work was gone. Right. I bet. I bet. And, you know, 2014, there's not a lot of backups, like, especially when you think about like cloud backups, like not a lot of organizations were adopting that uh, back at that time. And I, I like the story because it's almost like the straw that broke the camel's back. Like you had the the pain, the customer had the pain, and now it was time to do something about it. You could have started another email security company, right? Because maybe that piece of no. malware came in through uh, email. But what made you start Endpoint Protection versus another email security company? So the worst job in the world is running an email security <laughs> company. 
<laughs> there isn't a single day that goes by that doesn't involve both complaints that we block too much and complaints we didn't block enough. It is the worst job in the world. And it's also a dying market because mm. it's it was all going to be bought into Office 365. It was all going to be bought into the cloud providers. And it's like, I don't want to do this. I just, I never want to do it yet. And the funny thing is, I didn't realize how hard it was to make endpoint security because I never would have started if I'd known how hard it was <laughs> to even write the code, get the drivers, get the, the service, all of the problems, all of the, if I think about the blue screens of death we saw in the early days, I was, I never would have done it. Yeah. So you started you started ThreatLocker in 2015, right? Well, it was a 2017 we started ThreatLocker, but we were working on it for like two years beforehand. And it was 2017 we eventually picked a name and incorporated. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I was still doing ransomware recoveries and other stuff alongside this because this was not an easy project. And it was 2017 we eventually settled on a name, so we want to get more serious about making this work. And then when WannaCry came out, we had our earliest concept available. And that's when I was like, I'm not doing anything else in my life right now. I'm stopping working. I'm stopping everything until ThreatLocker is on every endpoint in this country. Oh, love that. I bet at that time still, you know, 2017 doesn't feel like that long ago. But I bet during that time, it was still an uphill battle with the approach that you were trying to take. You know, allow lists. Um, really a zero trust approach before people knew what zero trust was and maybe even before it was like the, the term was created. W was it an uphill battle at that point? And what, what were some of the experiences and, and memories that you have from going all in on ThreatLocker? Well, and first, and bear in mind, when you start a business, you need to do two things. One is you need to convince a buyer that your yep. product is worth buying. Um, and the other one is you need to convince investors that your product is worth investing in. Because to, to build an IT product is one thing, but to be able to execute and get it on endpoints, and if you don't get it on endpoints, it's not a security product. It doesn't do anything. <laughs> it sits in a nice box, and it's a really great product that never happened. And there's lots of those out there. Right. So, and, and first of all, convincing investors was impossible because investors all like to tell you that they're innovative, they're cutting edge, they're at the edge of technology. But they're not. What they look for in every company is a copycat. Mm. And they want, oh, can you, can you be a CrowdStrike? Can you do a CrowdStrike? Just, yeah, we can, but why? And, and even today, I have those conversations with investors. Well, why don't you add EDR or become a CrowdStrike? And I was like, look, if you want me to go, first of all, EDR doesn't work. Uh, and secondly, if you want me to go head-to-head -to, -head to CrowdStrike with their game, I lose. Right. <laughs> if I'm going to go head to head CrowdStrike, I'm playing my game, not theirs. So, uh, so investors never wanted to invest. Uh, and then the other problem was um, no customers would talk about it because 99% of customers, 99.9% .9 of ThreatLocker customers had never ever considered an allow listing or a zero trust approach before they spoke to ThreatLocker. And if they had, it was not zero trust at the endpoint. It was zero trust on the network or zero trust somewhere else. Right. So I had to do right. two things. And literally, we were picking up the phone. 2018, we still haven't got our first order. So my kids' school are the first people that use our product. And uh, so we're looking after their IT. So we put it out there. It's Your kid's school? My kid's school, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So the, uh, and the, the thing about it is, is we were looking after their IT for them. And they had malware every week. And by the way, it's not the students. It's the teachers. They're the worst. <laughs> so um, the students as well. and. We, we put ThreatLocker on it, and ThreatLocker at that point was very, very difficult to manage. But 
they went from every week another incident of a bot sending out emails to pop-ups on the machine to zero, nothing, no malware, no problems. And so we, we start calling people. We literally, I hired two people, like minimum wage in Florida, um, calling from my house. Because I was calling, I was writing code, and I, I co-founded this with my wife and her brother-in-law. And we're calling and we're thinking, and I got these two people and they just dial all day long saying, hey, we want you to look at our product. And <laughs> dumb idea. We got to about August 2018. And in August, I think it was August. Um, yeah, 2018. I was ready out. I was, I was bankrupt nearly. I was $150,000 in credit card debt. And that idea of stopping working didn't seem so good right then. <laughs> and I, 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 I actually went to a bankruptcy attorney. And I got one of the customers that answered the phone. They did a demo. And they um, signed an order, $5,000. And $5,000 is a pretty small order by all scale of things nowadays for annual revenue. It saved us from going bankrupt. And immediately after we got that order, we got our first investors. Wow. Because now, and, and there were angel investors, there were small check size investors, but now this wasn't a theory, I can sell this magical product. I'd sold this magical product to a defense contractor and I was able to get investment. And that's when everything changed. That's a close call. That is a really close call. And I think, you know, that's something that I hear a lot on founders stories. There's this podcast I listen to called the Founders Podcast. And a lot of founders find themselves in that situation, especially before they get investing, investing because they're bootstrapping or kind of taking a different approach than what we typically are used to, like in the VC world of like getting 20 million, 50 million, 100 million like it's that that beginning process is typically very hard. And I think a lot of cybersecurity practitioners, they look at vendors, they think, oh, they're probably making millions and millions of dollars because we're buying their their software. But I don't really think that's the case until like you sell or until you go public. What is what is your perspective on that? Well, and that's it. And look, most cybersecurity companies are venture funded. If they're not, they're either APO'd or they're IPO'd or they're the, the failing cybersecurity companies because, <laughs> yeah. because you, you have to be growing to succeed in this market. And it, it's, it's very hard because investors don't like to invest in companies that aren't growing really fast. You can't grow unless you get investment. And so you end up taking small angel investment, growing a little bit or starting to grow and then getting a, a, another a slightly bigger investment and then starting to grow, then getting a bigger investment and starting to grow. And that's where everything starts to change because you, you go from one set of problems to another and because now suddenly you've got, I mean, we're at 40 plus thousand businesses using our product now and they range from local businesses right up to the U.S. Navy and JetBlue and other large organizations. But it, it's, it, it's very hard at the beginning to get that traction. And all you think about is if I could just get investment, then everything's going to be fine. fine. And I realized very early on, I can't make this company work if I'm bootstrapping it, I have to just go all in. And right. I just didn't realize it was going to be that hard to go all in. I bet. I'd like to jump in for a second and share a few details about our sponsor, Threat Locker. In our industry, it's no secret that one wrong click can lead to a catastrophic cyber attack. Unfortunately, nobody has time to keep training poor Doris in accounting on what not to click. Cyber attacks are devastating to the business and without the correct solutions in place, your operations may be at risk. 
ThreatLocker is here to help. ThreatLocker has built an endpoint protection platform that can help strengthen your defenses from the ground up. When speaking to Danny and the ThreatLocker team, I was impressed because ThreatLocker has taken a zero trust approach for endpoint protection. They do this by enabling your team to specify allow lists. You can sleep well because known and unknown threats that live in applications or inbound network traffic are blocked by default at the kernel level. If you're looking for a proactive solution that will help keep your business better protected in the face of cyber attacks, check out ThreatLocker by visiting ThreatLocker.com and tell them Hacker Valley sent you. Thank you, ThreatLocker, for sponsoring this episode. Let's talk about ad adapting a little bit. You mentioned that you know you went from having your kids' school as your customer. Now you have more than 40,000 customers. What has it been like talking about zero trust, especially from an endpoint protection perspective? Is it Do people get it now, or is there still that misconception or maybe just... Uh, lack of awareness and education on zero trust? So the problem is zero trust is a way of thinking. So when you're talking to people, they often say, well, I have zero trust. And they're talking about, hey, they've got something on their phone or some other product that's doing a ZTNA or, mm -hmm. uh, and they're not really thinking, it's, but that's not what zero trust is. Zero trust is a way of thinking about security that starts off with a, hey, this is denied, and then I'm going to allow by exception. And we're talking about whether it's a program, whether it's network traffic, whether it's what a program can do, whether it's what can access files, who can access files. So it's a way of thinking. So right. what we're doing is we're creating a tool set. And the tool set's idea is, is to make that way of thinking viable in the endpoint, on the, doc, uh, you know, on, the, on the servers for applications. And what we have to do is still today, most of our marketing is not about buy throughout locker, we're the best. It's, this is how malware works. This is how threats work. This is how vulnerabilities get exploited. And we give examples and we say, but just imagine you blocked everything by default. This ransomware wouldn't be able to run. Just imagine that, you know, we, one of the incidents that helped Threat Locker was the Kaseya. Uh, I, I say helped, it kind of hurt us as well in a little bit. But in 2021, when Kaseya, the Kaseya vulnerability happened and ransomware was pushed out to thousands of businesses, it, it was, it was a very easy example to show this is what we stop. So it allowed us to, um, now the problem was we got such tailwinds from that, we almost crashed into a wall too because we went from calling and calling and calling people saying, hey, can you look at that locker? And it was, a, it, was a, it was a brief period of time to begging people not to install because our servers were going to go down because we uh -huh. had that many agents deployed in a weekend. So you had some other stories as well. Like we just talked about Kaseya. What about 3CX? What what was the story behind there, and how did you know ThreatLocker step in and help out on on that vulnerability? So I think as as computers become more and more vital, and we we trust our computer, or we use our computer for more and more, we run more software on that machine. And when you run software on your computer, all of that software can see all of your data. Uh, but you you make decisions to trust software. So SolarWinds, Orion, 3CX, these are good examples. You say, I trust this software. You go through the proper due diligence and you you make sure it's it, they have a SOC 2, type 2. They've got good security controls in place. And then you say, okay, I'm going to write you a check to use your software. Right. Now, the problem is when you install that software, if something happens to that software, if there's a, either a vulnerability or a backdoor in it, uh, so such as in SolarWinds, Orion, and, and 3CX, then that software can now consume all of your files. It can take your files. It can upload them to the internet. It can 
reach out to PowerShell. It can do anything on your machine that you can do as a user. And with 3CX, that was an allowed application. So when we think about zero trust, the first step is block untrusted software. But this wasn't untrusted. It was trusted software. But then the second step is, well, don't trust anything even when you need it. Only give it exactly what it needs. So 3CX needs access to your voice. It needs access to your, your camera. But it doesn't need access to all your network shares. It doesn't need to be able to talk to PowerShell. It doesn't need to be able to go out to the internet except to the 3CX website or your other, whatever your VoIP provider is. And by using ring fencing and threat locker, we're able to foil a number of attacks uh, using the 3CX. Well, it was malware that was pushed out, really. What, what exactly is ring fencing? So ring fencing is the idea that I've got to accept that I've got to trust certain applications on my machine, such as I'm on this machine, I'm using a webcam and I'm not sure who it's made by, but probably Logitech or someone. And I have to accept that there's software running to support that webcam. Now that software may be made in China or made in Taiwan or made in any country in the world. We don't know what their security posture is like. We don't know anything about them. And we really don't have a choice. It came with the laptop. I have to use it. So what ring fencing does is it takes every application you're running and it basically builds a perimeter around it to say, what does this application need to do in your environment? Does it need to see your files? And in 95% of cases, if not 99% of cases, the answer is no, it doesn't need to see my files. Does it need to call out to PowerShell? Again, no. Does it need to go out to the internet? Sometimes certain sites. And if you ring fence an application and take away those abilities, in most cases, it means the cyber attack cannot even be executed. Mm. So in SolarWinds Orion, we had it ring fence so it couldn't go out to the internet. The call was blocked. In um, the case of 3CX, it was ring fence so it couldn't see your files, it couldn't see your data. So while it was blocked, able to run, it wasn't able to do any damage to your machine any, or any significant damage to your machine. So it just limits the damage you can do by saying, okay, I accept I'm adding this risk into my environment, but it, I'm not allowing it to do more than it needs to. Yeah, it, it reminds me of using your mobile phone, like you're mentioning, and getting that pop-up that says, do you want to give this app access to your files? Do you want to give it access to your webcam? I'm surprised that we're just now seeing this in operating systems, like on our laptops and desktops, but it sounds like uh, ThreatLocker kind of brings in that approach even before the operating system had those features built in. Is that right? Yeah, and there's very limited features in Windows even today. Uh, Mac has a few more on them, but, it, but and where those features do exist, they tend to be like, hey, I can stop it accessing your camera and not your files. And the files are the really important. If someone wants to take a picture of me, they're really lonely. <laughs> <laughs> but the files, the data, that's the stuff that you should be absolutely terrified of. And that's where your financials, your data, your customer files, on your computer. And we, we see this all the time. So ring fencing not only stops attacks being launched, but it stops them from being effective, mm -hmm. period. I want to educate the world on a question. And that is, what is zero trust? I would love to hear your rendition on what is zero trust, especially from a practical sense. I think like the, the idea and the mindset is easy to, to just say, but but what is it, especially when you think about being a cybersecurity practitioner? So but to, before I answer that, do you remember the days in the 1990s? Do you remember the cloud in the 90s? Not really. <laughs> no, you, you, know what, you know what it was called in the 90s? Hosting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you, you would have your email hosted with your ISP or with, your, with, someone, with Hotmail or with someone else. And then today it's called the cloud. So Office 365 isn't hosted email. It's the cloud. 
And, and the reason I bring that up is because zero trust is the latest word for least privilege. That's what it means. It means only grant access, and there's a, there's a very clear definition, I can remember though, it's like only grant access to no, services, node, or users where access is required to perform the function or job of the object. So, and that's what zero trust means. It means only give access where access is required. What it means to ThreatLocker is don't allow the, the object we're trying to just trust or not trust is the application on the endpoint, the network on the endpoint. So it's don't allow an application to run, don't allow it to do more than it needs to. And that application might very well include ransomware because ransomware is just an application. So when you say, well, I've got a product for zero trust, the question is, is what are you, where in your business are you implementing zero trust? Because zero trust, you could say I've implemented zero trust simply by going into your, all of your file systems and saying, I only give users access to the files they need. But that's not zero trust across the board. That's one part of zero trust. And that's what it means. It means least privilege. It's the cloud word to hosting. Every organization that I've joined as a cybersecurity practitioner, that that mindset and concept is understood and somewhat adopted. But there's always one area where it's like, hey, this application doesn't have um, the proper uh, features to give like separate access and permission. Uh, or, you know, there is a rush. We're going through an audit and we need to quickly give everyone on security access to these set of applications. It seems like the, the principle and mindset is easy to follow, but there's always uh, one thing that gets in the way that could cause that catastrophic event, like receiving ransomware. How do you, you know, bring zero trust into your own organization at ThreatLocker? Well, so obviously, and there's multiple parts. So we as a company operate purely on least privilege. And I actually, I won't say who, but I heard a, well, a CEO of a company recently referring to their business as a completely open book. Everyone knows everything in the company. I was like, look, we, we have to engage in giving people access to information that they need. And we have to engage in giving people in the company access to information that we need them to so they can row in the same direction. But we as a company, we, we say, what do you need access to? Do you need access to this customer's data? Do you need access to finance? Do you need to see the invoices for this customer? If the answer is yes, then we give you access to it. Now, we pretty much only use our own software in-house, so everything's built into our platform. We use, obviously, Windows, Office, um, Zoom, but we don't use a, a third-party CRM. We don't use a third-party invoicing system. We use all our own. So homegrown. It's very easy for homegrown. Homegrown CRM. Yes. Homegrown CRM. Nice. So, so um, and, and if, if you grow as fast as us, you'll understand why, because you need to see data is your best friend. Mm -hmm. uh, so understanding what employees are doing, who's performing, getting that data is really important. And my, my idea of solving a problem is coding. So we're able to implement access only where required, and then we can add extra controls on that. So let's say support, they have read access to customers account when they come into support. But if they access more than so many, it gets logged, it gets reviewed, the customer can see those logs. But if they access 100 customers in a day, that's outside of their need to do business. So we shut them off. It's like, then the threshold is much lower than that because they don't take 100 tickets a day. But we shut them off if they go outside of their regularly required need. And in ThreatLocker, of course, it means using our product. It means blocking down endpoints. So the only software that can run is the software that's needed in your business. Now, we're a very rigid company. So when someone tries to run new software and they say, 
hey, I downloaded this cool coupon clipper because I think it would be a great product in ThreatLocker, we go, deny. <laughs> so um, <laughs> tell, tell me why you can't do your job without it. Now, other companies take a more liberal approach. They say, okay, we're going to allow things. Uh, we're going to approve things that are not malware. Uh, we're going to approve things that are, seem to have a relevant business need. And we're going to block everything else. But it means realistically only doing what you need to do, whether it's at the network, whether it's at the endpoint. And the endpoint's where you're going to get your ransomware from. Your endpoint's your service. If you don't implement zero trust when it comes to application control, stopping malware, eventually you open malware. Right. Well, someone does. Exactly. I 100% agree. Um, you, you need it. I think you need to at least be thinking about it constantly as well. Like, let alone imp implementation's one thing, but having the culture, the mindset spread out throughout the, the company, I think is what really helps people make better decisions. Because it sounds like ThreatLocker enables uh, companies to make decisions. Like, do I need this or do I not need this? Yes. And that's what we are. We are a tool to allow you to, to help you make the decisions. We give you the tool to stop the decisions being made for you by staff that don't necessarily know what they're doing or applications that go rogue. And we give you the tools to help you make the right decision. So when you approve software now, we can show you what countries it was developed on, what exploits it's being used for, all of that information to make good decisions when you allow or deny software. I want to go back for a second, going back to when you were you know, founding that first email security company, seeing the security landscape, and then fast forward to today as the CEO and founder of ThreatLocker, focused on Endpoint. Do you see similarities? Do you see differences? You know, what is your reflection on then versus now? Um, was a convenience tool. No one was getting email security to stop phishing attacks that stole their money. They were getting email security because they got 15 emails a day that offered them Viagra or <laughs> something like that. So, and the, so we were selling not a security product realistically. I know it was but it was a productivity tool. Mm. And so when we think about, and even malware back then, it was the most notorious malware in the world. This is what the newspaper said in 2000 when the Love Book came out. Not most notorious malware in the world infects one third of world's business computers. And you know what the malware did? It said, I love you. <laughs> that was the most notorious malware in the world. Devastating. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> So it was devastating. And yeah, then it emailed all your friends and said it loved them as well. And it would be most a little bit embarrassing when you emailed your cousin saying I love you or something. But, uh, the, but that, that was, uh, that was the, the problem we were dealing with them. Security was very much... Now, if you're Bank of America or you're JP Morgan, then you had people trying to get in and steal money. But for most businesses, security tools were, were convenience tools. They were productivity tools. So how do we keep our systems running? How do we stop pop-ups? How do we stop nuisance emails. And that's what my first security product did. It was our sales point was not don't let your business get taken away. It was save employee time. Spam mm. represents this many emails in the inbox. Yep. Now we're talking about real issues, man. Real issues that will end your business in five minutes by someone clicking on the wrong thing. Wow. You know, a lot of our audience work in cybersecurity. Some, I, I, I would say about 45 to 50% work in senior leadership. They're architects, they're directors, CISOs, and then the other half are cybersecurity practitioners, the individual contributors that are, you know, being hands-on. For anyone that's listening to this episode right now that wants to be just a little bit more secure, maybe apply zero trust, 
what would be your one piece of advice to them? So I, I think, first of all, of course, I, other than get a demo with Threat Locker, which, <laughs> so, but I, I think, first of all, do something. Don't plan, don't strategize. Whether it's, hey, I'm going to deploy Threat Locker and I'm going to start learning in the next week, I'm going to secure something. Or whether it's, I'm going to go on my servers and shut down outbound internet traffic. Do something. Mm. Because I find so, and this is not a, just a security problem. This is a business problem in general. So many people get in their own way. And if you, when you overthink something and you say, I've got such a big project, I can't do anything, then you achieve nothing. Look at your biggest weakness. And of course, your weaknesses are your endpoint. People can run software, people can, uh, but it could be that you've got port 3389 open, which would be really bad. <laughs> like, but it, it, could, it could be other thing. But look at your biggest weakness and say, I'm going to solve that problem today. I'm going to solve it right now. I'm not going to have a meeting about it. I'm not going to have a discussion about it. I'm just going to do something and solve it. And that's what you need to do if you work in security because you can never be 100% secure. But you can make very small steps once a week to make yourself more secure. And before you know it, you're more secure than most people. If you do nothing, which is what most people do, you're less secure and you are the victim. Powerful do and execute and do and just keep on going until you get to the result that you want to land on or you know at least make some progress i think that's what it's all about danny thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy day to jump on the mics with me and talk about threat locker and zero trust and also an epic hero founder's journey uh danny's information is down into the show notes and description wherever you're listening be sure to check it out and also follow and uh, get a demo with Threat Locker like Danny mentioned. And with that, we will see everyone next time.